This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're broadcasting live from Johannesburg on the frequency 15235 kHz on the 31-meter band to West Africa. I'm Jazz Arad, uh, with me on the show doing your economic report later on, Wisani Matabula and Fikil Lenguati with your latest in the sport. Our top stories here on Africa Digest this hour. World's AIDS Day is being observed today with the international theme, Getting to Zero New Infections. South Africa's Jacob Zuma warns developed countries that fail to play their part in halting climate change will create the impression that they're not sympathetic to the impact of global warming on the masses. Sportswise, Ethiopia and Uganda will contest this first semi-final of the Senior Challenge Cup. Now with the news, here's Wisani. Good evening. Militants from the Islamist group Boko Haram killed eight people in an attack on village in the southeast of Niger. The group is seeking to carve out an emirate based on severe interpretation of Islamic law in northeastern Nigeria and has also carried out numerous cross-border attacks into neighboring countries, including Niger. About 50 villagers' homes were set ablaze in the attack. Boko Haram killed five people in a village in North Cameroon on Saturday and 18 in another village of Niger's Difa region on Thursday. Niger has declared a state of emergency in its southern region in October, but attackers often flee across the river Komado into Nigeria. Meanwhile, hundreds of schools in northeast Nigeria have reopened for the first time in a year and a half. However, many teachers and pupils are reluctant to return because of persistent violence in the region. Almost 450 schools have reopened in Borno State since October. This comes more than 18 months after education was stopped in the wake of an attack by Boko Haram militants on a boarding school in neighboring Yobe State. About 59 students were killed. Schools in Adamawa and Borno States are doubling the number of classes to provide education for the people uprooted by the conflict. And health experts are meeting in Devon, South Africa, to debunk the stigma around the female condom at the Global Female Condom Conference. Non-governmental organization Universal Access to Female Condoms says access and information on female condoms must be upscaled. They perform the same pregnancy, STI, and HIV prevention functions as traditional male condoms. UAFC International Chair, Kreke Lube where women spend usually quite a bit of time with their hairdresser in an intimate environment and where a well-trained hairdresser can play an important role in explaining how you use the female condom, how you insert it and how you can speak to your partner about this, for you, maybe new device. Meanwhile, South Africa is one of the first countries in the world to support a comprehensive female condom program either through free government distribution or at supermarkets or pharmacies. Eva Marumo from the health department says while male condom distribution is widely available, the female condom program is only just beginning. 
what is the main goal is to see more people using protective measures and also being able to say that they don't have any reason to say that they did not use condoms because they did not want whatever method. We have just uh, started with a new tender that started on the 1st of July and it's coming to an end 2018. So we hope by 2018 there will be other developments in the market. And South Africa's Supreme Court of Appeal will announce on Thursday if it will overturn Oscar Pistorius' conviction of culpable homicide that could send him back to prison. Pistorius was freed on a parole last month after serving a fifth of his prison term for manslaughter. He killed River Camp in February 2013. Prosecutors want him to be convicted of murder, while the defense argues that the sentence he received in the High Court in Pretoria is appropriate and should stand. That's your news for now. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. Well, if you just tuned in, welcome to the show. I'm Jazz O'Reilly and this is Africa Digest. On this uh, Tuesday evening, five minutes after five Central African time. Well, ahead, we'll be taking uh, quite a few interviews in the show, talking about FOCAC, which is, says, is the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, FOCAC, uh, is what they've called it now. Uh, we've got something about that. There's also an interview with regard to more transparency uh, throughout Africa. We're growing up. And uh, finally, we will be chatting to Michael Haywood. All of that, including not forgetting our news headlines at half, and then, of course, economics and sports in the second half of the show. As countries continue to mark World Aids Day today, pharmaceutical companies in South Africa say they have an important role to play in assisting the country's Ministry of Health in its quest to put more HIV-positive patients on antiretroviral treatment. In 2013, the World Health Organization issued new HIV treatment guidelines recommending countries to start HIV patients on antiretrovirals sooner when their CD4 count fell below 500. The guidelines drew in part from studies that showed that HIV-positive people who started ARVs at higher CD4 counts were about 96% less likely to transmit the virus. Paul Miller is the Chief Executive Officer for Cipla Metro, a South African pharmaceutical manufacturer. World AIDS Day for anyone like myself who works for Cipla, it's been a, a fairly long journey, way back in the 90s we envisaged that we could actually provide HIV medicines at an affordable price. In those early days, it was going for close on 150,000 rand a year for treatment. And now we managed to get that treatment right down to 100 rand a month. And it was wonderful today to see that there's close on 3 million patients living with HIV and AIDS in this country who are now being treated with a fixed dose combination of HIV treatment. And it's incredibly heartening to be down now with the deputy president in KZN and to know that in KwaZulu-Natal alone, they are treating over one million patients 
with HIV medicine. How important do you think this supportive role that you're playing as pharmaceutical companies is in assisting the government to administer ARVs? For us, it's the reason for us to be. We stand for affordable health care for everybody. And for us to be able to take HIV medicines and make it available to over 3 million patients within South Africa on a monthly basis, it just fulfills our reason for being. And it fulfills our vision and our mission, which is that medicine should never be denied from anyone who can't afford them. But everyone should have access to medicine. Tell us about some of the challenges that you face in ensuring that treatment is available. The big challenge that we've all faced in South Africa is that the government has run an exceptionally good program in treating patients living with HIV and AIDS. In fact, they've gone from treating a handful of patients to now close on 3 million patients in a very short space of time. And that's meant that companies like CIPLA have had to scale up their facilities and scale up their capability of not just producing 100,000 tablets a month, but now on a monthly basis, CIPLA produces well on 1.5 million tablets every month. And that's been quite a challenge to scale up our business, to procure active ingredients, make sure that we're able to produce quality, affordable medicines, but do it on a mass basis. What about the stigma around HIV AIDS in South Africa? How best do you think it can be tackled? So the stigma on HIV AIDS has not gone away. In a recent study, people were asked if they were living with HIV and AIDS, had they shared their status. And for those who had shared their status, close to to half of them had faced stigmatization, where either they were excluded from their family gatherings, it cost them their jobs, or even their social engagement with their friends. So it remains a big challenge in this country in terms of how do we make sure that people can um, share their status, get treatment, and still be afforded the support and attention they deserve. And this remains a big challenge in this country. Overall, do you think that enough progress has been made in the country in the fight against the disease? I think there's been incredible progress, particularly in mother-to-child transmission, where we've seen infection rates within newborn children has absolutely collapsed, and that's been a positive, positive result. What we've also seen is that of the 6 million people living with HIV and AIDS in South Africa, nearly half of them are now on treatment, which is also a massive achievement, and, and the government needs to take credit for that. But I think the emerging challenge we now have is that the young girls between the ages of 16 and 24 have the highest incidence of prevalence and infection in this country. And that's a great concern to think that our young daughters or our young children are getting infected at such a young age. That's Paul Miller, Chief Executive Officer for CIPLA Metro in South Africa, talking to Elizabeth Lediga. South African President Jacob Zuma will tomorrow host the President of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping, on a state visit. This ahead of the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, or FOCAC, summit, which is taking place for the first time on African soil. The forum will be preceded by a meeting of senior officials on Wednesday, followed by the sixth ministerial meeting of FOCAC on Thursday. President Xi Jinping and President Jacob Zuma will co-chair the actual summit on Friday and Saturday. African heads of state and government representatives from the African Union, heads of regional organizations and multilateral organizations will also participate in the summit.
which will be held under the theme Africa China Progressing Together Win Win Cooperation for Common Development. Now, to discuss this further, we have on the line Yazini April. She's a research、uh, specialist at the Human Science Research Council. Welcome to Channel Africa, Yazini. Thank you very much, and thank good day to your listeners.、Uh, thank you. Now, just how crucial is this FOCAC summit?、Um, it's crucial for many aspects.、Yeah. The first one being that、um, the summit, I think, has been one of the key compared to like your, your Africa Europe summit. Yeah. And the and the and and the、um, what you call the the the, the, the U.S. Africa summit that was held last year. The the, the China Africa one has been is different because it has set it's not only set itself apart in the consistency, but also with the delivery.、Um, every time when they met, there's already an upgrade to say we did this, and then we're going to do that.、Um, the upgrade last time was the peacekeeping, and. Suspicion is that the upgrade this time will be on industrialization.、Um, so it, it's crucial because of the way it has progressed. It has become something tangible、uh, for the continent to see, because also an alternative for African countries, given the history. So it, it, it's crucial for to, to different players for different things also. Okay,、uh, Yazini, President. Chinese President Xi Jinping will arrive in South Africa tomorrow for a state visit ahead of the summit. How would you describe relations between the two countries? I think that I read an article once that South Africa has is is is, is looking east,、mm. um, and east I would say there's some accuracy in the fact that South Africa has invested a lot of attention to the relationship, and I, and I think it, it's it's the good part is that it is、uh, mutual. It's not like a. Uh, the colonial type thing、mm. of the master and the what what,、yeah. um, but so the relations are good, but there are still things that need to be ironed out.、Um, the issue of the the, the, the trade imbalance was still exporting a lot of um, um, um,、uh, raw and 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 and, and、mm. shipping back、um, finished goods,、um, and also the issue of and and a lot of China. By the way, there's a lot of Chinese、uh, mining partnerships. In South Africa, actually, and 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 I have to be fair in saying that China has、um, been 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 good in in trying to implement the the MPRDA, and I think it's、mm. our part.、Uh, we are the ones who need to come to the party on how it's implemented to really benefit out of it. So the relations have been good from an economic point to some degree, but there's room for more. Well, you you probably answered my next question, which was: so we're likely to see trading increase between the two countries. You've pretty much said that. There will probably will, but、um, I think that will also be more of a focus on manufacturing be because、mm. China is planning on going into services,、mm. and obviously South Africa already has the, some of the infrastructure in、mm. place to be able. Because you can't just move your manufacturing plants to any just country. You want to go to countries that have some of the facilities to be able to like. Be able to 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 do the manufacturing, and I think that's that、uh, vehicle, fire that that plant that 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 automobile plant that that went to Guha.、Um, but then again, it, as I said to you earlier, mining is one of the key areas that China is involved in South Africa. And I, I would hope that the government would ensure that 
they engage China more seriously with beneficiation that, you know, we produce more things this side instead of exporting some of the stuff to China. Because, like, we buy the steel yep. back, you know, and we, and okay. we ship out ferrochrome. Yazini, thank you very much. Yazini April, Research Specialist at the Human Science Research Council. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Pleasure. Bye. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. For Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. I'm Jazz Arad, live from Johannesburg, 17 minutes after 7 Central African time. A majority of Africans say corruption has risen in the last year. And most governments are seen as failing their duty to stop the abuse of power, bribery and secret deals. This according to a new opinion poll from Transparency International. In the report titled People and Corruption, Africa Survey 2015, part of the Global Corruption Barometer, Transparency International partnered with Afrobarometer, which spoke to more than 40,000 respondents across 28 countries in sub-Saharan Africa to ask them about their experience and perception of corruption in their countries. To discuss the findings of the survey, we have on the line Tapiwe Uchizi Nyasulu, Regional Coordinator for Southern Africa at Transparency International. Welcome to Channel Africa. Tapiwa. Yes, I'm here. Thank you very much for having me on air. Ah, now, what were the main findings of the survey, briefly? Well, the main finding that uh, we've noticed at the moment is that corruption is indeed uh, on the rise on the continent, whereby the majority of uh, Africans uh, 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 in the last uh, uh, 12 months that indicated that actually uh, corruption is on the rise and which is surprising and, and, and it's a very uh, high number. And particularly most interesting is that South Africans responding the way uh, uh, more than four in five citizens that's representing 83% say that they have seen corruption rise in this country. And uh, uh, one of it that we also uh, notice is, and where you've, you've indicated is that when we ask in terms of uh, which institutions, 10 key institutions that, and groups in society mm-hmm. that are perceived to be most corrupt and they've also paid a bribe, it's the police and the private sector. In this one, <clears throat> would say that mainly if you look at uh, 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 the private sector, the business executive, we've yeah. seen that it's the highest level corruption and it's a new trend in this one whereby in the other uh, uh, results would know that the police would most of the time and regularly being rated as highly corrupt but now 
a strong negative assessment of the business executive is new mm. compared to previous uh, 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 service that we've conducted. Tapiwa, take us through the process of how the survey was conducted. Well, uh, the survey, as you've indicated, at Transparency International, we partnered with Afrobarometer, a pan-African yeah. and partisan uh, institute yeah. that conducts um, mm. um, the So did they go on the streets Africa. or did they send out papers or, or fly, or, you know, did they actually do one-to-one? Physical interviews, uh-huh. physical interviews uh-huh. that they did with the, with, with the respondents. Mm. And, um, uh, and these were conducted by their local partners in country. Mm. Some of them are research institutions at universities. And uh, for South Africa here, for instance, it's, um, uh, 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 it was coordinated um, by the... Institute of Justice and Reconciliation, who mm-hmm. subcontracted a local uh, 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 research institution that had to do it. Now, to for other countries yeah. like Kenya, it's the Institute at the University of of, of, of Kenya. Tapiwa, what sort of services do Africans or across the continent pay bribes for? Well, the most based uh, on your uh, uh, respondents. Based, yes, based on the respondents, um, after the, the, you know, the key public services that people mm. come into contact with and they pay the bribe, is the, the, the ones which ranked and they, where they paid the bribe most was the police and the courts. <laughs> and this is um, also consistent on the police part mm. and, the, and, the, the, and, and the courts, and that's where we're trying to wow. inform and, and, and call upon that well, I think... The judicial system needs mm. to be reformed mm-hmm. because of the process that is going on there and mm. the police as well because these are the services which they're supposed to provide to people and Absolutely. not expected to be paying bribes because mm. those, those are fundamental rights where Correct. they need to, pro- mm. to be provided services. So what are, the, what are some of the recommendations? Well, you've, you've said some now, but you know, any others? Yes. Um, one of it that we're trying to call upon uh, uh, when you look at when you, you, you look at uh, uh, corruption being seen to be on the rise on the continent, I think we, we, we are recommending that, well, governments must, you know, uh, mm. finally deliver on the anti-corruption commitments made globally, and that you're looking at the UN Convention Against Corruption, mm. and regional as well with the instruments on the African Union Convention on Combating Corruption. And uh, 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 looking at the uh, aspect of, of the, uh, the business, the business mm. sector, we think where governments must show a sustained and deep commitment on acting on police corruption, mm. and um, and also companies need to to transparently report their operations and activities, revenues on a country by country basis to build public trust and dispel perceptions of corruption in the country. I think that's the direction that we need to be looking at because people um, uh, are these. The people, poor people are the ones who are suffering most when they get in contact with these services which are, you know, they are forced to pay a bribe. A hard ask, Tapiwe. Tapiwe, a very hard ask, but I, I hear you and of course you're quite right. Tapiwa Uchizi Nyasulu, thank you very much. Regional Coordinator for Southern Africa Transparency International. Thank you for joining us here on Africa Digest. Appreciate Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
World AIDS Day is being observed today with the international theme Getting to Zero New Infections set by the World AIDS Campaign, an international coalition of HIV and AIDS groups and networks. As the day is observed, Moki Kenzeka reports on the plight of AIDS patients in Cameroon who don't have regular access to treatment. These are the voices of members of the Association of People Living with AIDS in Cameroon. They say a critical shortage of antiretroviral drugs has hit the country. 36-year-old Mathieu Mvondo says their health conditions are becoming worse. Nous avons des difficultés parce que pour la, la, avoir l'accès au traitement, c'est très difficile parce que to have access to treatment is very difficult. When you go to the hospital, you are told that there is nothing or that you should come again after one week because antiretrovirals are not available. Some molecules were not available, so the doctors gave alternatives since we cannot live without antiretrovirals. Some molecules même il y en a pas et on est obligé de changer pour lui donner une autre molécule parce qu'il ne faut pas qu'il reste sans avoir les antiretroviraux. Mathieu adds that people living with AIDS all over Cameroon have been complaining to their association and to the government of Cameroon, yet little is done to help them. Ce matin encore, j'ai suivi l'hôpital de la Quintini. Il n'y a pas de médicaments là-bas. This morning, there were no medicines at the La Quintini Hospital in Douala and in Marwa. There are patients complaining, so I think that something should be done, and quickly too, for them to have their treatment. As you may know, when you are not treated, your body develops resistance, meaning that when the medication will be available, it may not be effective, and some of us will be forced to go to Europe for treatment, and we do not have the means. The government should raise money and supply the antiretrovirus. Débloquer ce financement pour acheter des médicaments pour que les personnes qui continuent à souffrir du manque de médicaments ne puissent plus avoir ce problème. As a result of the shortage, most patients are already switched to other forms of the life-saving drugs. But the 42-year-old Janine Kwake says most pharmacies had either run low on supply or had completely run out of the drugs. Quand les patients vont à la pharmacie, when people living with AIDS, like me, go to the pharmacy, we are told that our molecules are not available. They ask us to go back to our doctors so that the prescription should be changed. So all the times, we are forced to now change our treatment. With the persistent shortage, Cameroon's President Paul Bia ordered that some 10 million United States dollars be withdrawn from the state treasury for the supply of the drugs. Janine says the money has not been disbursed. The head of state has signed a decree, but it does not mean that the money is already available. It is still going to be a long process before the Minister of Finance disburses the money. What we are doing now is preparing correspondences to encourage them to make available the funds. We have always sacrificed and refused to go to the streets because we want to know what is happening before we can start protesting.
Cameroon's Minister of Public Health, Andre Mamafuda, has attributed the shortage to the increasing number of people receiving antiretrovirals from 28,000 in 1998 to more than 200,000 this year. That is 42% of people in need of it. He says government's subvention for the drugs has been stagnant while funds from the Global Fund for AIDS have reduced by 30%. Ces 18 derniers mois, nous avons vécu des tensions de stock. For the past 18 months, we have witnessed shortages in stock because of insufficient resources. Demand was very high and we did not have enough time to buy and stock antiretroviral drugs. Beaucoup de tensions de stock et des fois certaines ruptures de molécules. Mama Fuda adds that besides the presidential grant, they are thinking of generating funds locally to take care of the growing needs of people living with AIDS. We are today thinking of creating a support fund for health. This will permit us to raise additional funds. We also have another approach to convince enterprises to contribute for the purchase of antiretroviral drugs. The Global Fund this month approved a 20 million United States dollar grant agreement for HIV treatment, while Cameroon said it will nearly double the amount for purchasing antiretroviral medicines in its annual budget, which will increase to 20 million United States dollars in 2014 from barely 11 million this year. The new joint funding initiatives are expected to secure antiretroviral treatment to 122,000 people who have subvention for treatment from the state, but about 150,000 others still have to wait for the government to negotiate funds for their treatment. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé. Now time for the news headlines. Here's Wisani Matbula. Good evening. Nigeria's former finance minister, Bashir Yuguda, arrested in connection with two billion U.S. dollars arms deal. And a Muslim man killed on the edge of a Christian besieged enclave in the Central African Republic a day after Pope Francis visited the area calling for peace and tolerance. And Boko Haram killed eight people in, in an attack on a village in the southeast of Niger. And these were the stories making headlines. This is Africa Digest. I'm Jazzarod. Welcome to the show. If you've just tuned in, yep, we've got our economic report at quarter to the hour, ten to the hour, our first sports update. That's with Fikir Lengwati. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has warned developed countries that failure to play their part in halting climate change will create the impression that they're not sympathetic to the impact of global warming on the masses. Addressing the climate summit in Paris, Zuma called for a legally binding agreement. He asked developed countries to take responsibility by honoring commitments. Here, President Zuma elaborates. Well, it is important, firstly, because uh, the challenge of the climate change is very severe, particularly to developing countries. And besides anything, I think South Africa's geographic position does 
put it in a serious kind of challenge. But that's a challenge that faces everyone. But again, South Africa worked very hard because we appreciated and understood the challenge facing humanity. And that's why when we chaired the conference of the parties in South Africa in 2011, we worked very hard to establish a platform that would be very useful that after five years we should have a new agreement which is binding because we knew that Kyoto Protocol was coming to an end. So we needed something very binding legally because if we don't have that, it means the period where we come from, where there was an emission, where there was no control, it could come back. We need to control the emission so that we could lessen, therefore, the heat of the earth below 2 Celsius, so that we can save ourselves as well as the future generations that are coming. Much as it is our behavior that has, in a sense, brought this challenge, it is also our behavior that will help to save us from challenges that, that, that will face the, the globe. We heard a lot in your speech and from other leaders of developing countries that the developed nations need to do much more. In fact, we heard in your speech there about that $100 billion which was pledged in Copenhagen back in 2009. That that actually isn't enough, that more needs to be done by developed countries to support developing nations. Well, we are not saying the developing countries should do nothing. They must also do what they can. That's why... When we say the developed countries should take responsibilities, we're not saying the developing countries should do nothing. They should also do what they can. Their capacities are not the same. And besides that, there's a common point that they are developing countries. But also they have a history which is linked to the developed countries. Because developed countries have been in charge of many of these countries historically. So they were themselves administering some of these countries. But also, when you talk about industrial revolution that came, it came to the developed countries. And they therefore produce a lot of emission. And they should take that responsibility. It's important because they do have the means, the capabilities, the expertise to help. And to this globe, it's not saying when the climate changes, some people will survive because they've got all, all the technologies, whatever. All of us will perish. And therefore it is important that all of us play our roles. One of the threats that faces the smaller countries, particularly those who are islands, because of the rise of the level of the sea, they are actually small islands will submerge. I think it is important that humanity must save itself. We've had a lot of goodwill, a lot of clear positive messages from all of the leaders at the start of this summit I suppose the question that many viewers want to know is look in the next five to ten years in South Africa what concrete things will change what things will the government introduce uh, initiatives to ensure that South Africa uh, does it uh, does its bit as one of the major emitters uh, in the world and definitely uh, in the continent does it bit to reduce emissions well what South Africa is doing firstly the discussion among the global countries is that the developing countries could still use some of the things that they also used, but whilst at the same time beginning to introduce new things that are not damaging to the environment. For an example, the renewable energy, which we are using in South Africa, 
we have very serious programs that are getting into that space, in other words, so that we could reduce our usage of the things that will, in a sense, damage the kind of uh, environment. We are, for an example, looking at solar, we are looking at wind, the sun, we are looking at nuclear, which is also clean energy, which will then replace what at the moment we've been doing as we've been industrializing South Africa, but also contribute within our capacity to where we need to contribute in terms of what is it that we can do in the continent of Africa to ensure that the emissions are reduced rather than being raised. So the the reduction of emissions in so far as South Africa is concerned, that is a program we are undertaking as a country, recognizing that we have in terms of industrialization of South Africa emitted more than any other country in the continent of Africa. So we are conscious of that and we are taking very specific measures to deal with it. South African President Jacob Zuma speaking to our correspondent. Pardon me, correspondent Dan Whitehead at the COP21 summit in Paris. Senior African human rights figures have created a group with an ambitious goal to end impunity across the continent. The Africa Group for Justice and Accountability was recently launched on the sidelines of the International Criminal Court Assembly of States Parties in The Hague. The group comprises of African experts in international criminal law and human rights law and political figures. Judge Richard Goldstone of South Africa, former Chief Prosecutor of the UN International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda and Yugoslavia, is one of them. Well, the Africa Group for Justice and Accountability consists of legal experts, particularly in international law and international criminal law, from right across the continent. And our purpose is to help the continent and obviously governments address the issue of justice and accountability for war crimes in an appropriate way. In particular, by using domestic law, countries should use their own laws to deter the commission of war crimes and to bring people to justice and make them accountability. But if they don't, then it's up to the region, it's up to the continent, the, the AU and, and regional organizations to do something about it, and as a last resort, to turn to the International Criminal Court. Okay, but now you're talking here about countries using their own domestic laws to deal with crimes against humanity. Now, it seems to me that the International Criminal Court was set up in the first place because countries in general were unable to use their domestic laws to bring to justice people charged with crimes against humanity in the first place. Well, you know, the International Criminal Court, the ICC, was not set up specifically with Africa in mind. It included Africa, obviously, but it it was set up really to bring accountability for war crimes as a last resort right across the whole world. It grew out of the successes of the UN criminal tribunals with the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda and the Special Court for Sierra Leone. Um, it was that experience that led governments right across the world and galvanized civil society, NGOs right across the world, to call for a permanent court. It was felt it was unacceptable to rely only on the UN Security Council to set up courts like for the former Yugoslavia or for Rwanda, uh, to, to have the UN involvement in Sierra Leone. So it, it was felt there should be a permanent independent court dealing with these matters. 
Of course, the politics got messy because large countries, in particular the United States, Russia and China, were not prepared, and India, were not prepared to make themselves subject to an international criminal court. And this is one of the reasons that the whole situation of the International Criminal Court has become a little bit muddy, particularly on the African continent. But we hope that this Africa Group for Justice and Accountability will bring some reasonable level-headed thinking about it. And we, we hope it will also encourage similar groups to be set up on the other continents, in Asia in particular. But now, won't the group find itself faced with the same resentments from African leaders that we see in play, you know, here with the International Criminal Court? Well, you know, as I say, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about it. I don't believe that the people of of any country on our continent in Africa are in favor of people who commit war crimes getting away with it and being unaccountable. So I I think there's a common interest in justice right across our continent. And it's a question now of channeling it in a way that will be acceptable from a political point of view. You know, there's always the interface between justice and politics, whether within our own country or in any country, or internationally or indeed regionally. There's always this this tension between politics and justice, and I hope that our group can assist leaders and civil society wade through these difficulties with more ease. Now, why did you and your counterparts find it necessary to form this group? Is it because you thought that leaders were getting away with crimes and there was no justice for the victims? You know, not really. The initiative came from the German foundation, Wayamo. It has had a lot of experience over many years in Africa, and the idea was put to us whether we thought this was a good idea to set up the Africa Group for, for Justice Accountability. And all of us who were approached reacted positively. And we had a very upbeat first meeting, as you mentioned, uh, as a side event during the recent meeting in The Hague of the Assembly of States Parties. The first main meeting, public meeting, of our group is going to be held in Cape Town on the 22nd of March of this year. So there will be mu- you know, much more coming out of that meeting. And what has the response been to this new organization by African leaders? Have they welcomed it? Well, there's been no response that I know of, but certainly the judges, the lawyers, and some of the diplomats who were in The Hague appear to welcome it. I don't know of any specific response from an African government. Um, That we must wait and see what happens. And then finally, Judge, African leaders, as you know, have been complaining that the International Criminal Court is biased against Africa, that they only focus on African affairs. Now, would you agree, or is it that African leaders just don't want to be held to account? Well, you know, there are certainly double standards in this whole situation. I mean, you have the UN Security Council referring Libya to the ICC. You have the Security Council referring the situation in Darfur and Sudan to the ICC. But when terrible war crimes are committed and are being committed right now in Syria, war crimes were committed to a huge extent in Sri Lanka. The UN Security Council didn't do anything about that because there were large countries, particularly members of the P5, who wanted to protect those countries. So there is a justification for accusing the international community of double standards. I must say, I think it's unfair to accuse the ICC of double standards. If there are double standards, if there's anybody to be blamed for double standards, it's, it's the United Nations and particularly the Security Council. So, so you know, I, I think that's the sort of issue that needs to be debated and explained to people across our continent. And the answer, our group strongly believes, and here I can speak on behalf of all of us, the answer is not for Africa or African countries to withdraw from the ICC. 
the answers for African leaders to take steps to stop the double standards that are being applied. Judge Richard Goldstone of South Africa, former Chief Prosecutor of the UN International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda and Yugoslavia, speaking to Josejo Dingake. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana, reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Now, here's our economic report. Here's with Sandy Matibula. Good evening. Oil giant Shell has agreed to pay 15.5 million U.S. dollars in settlement of a legal action in which it was accused of having collaborated in the execution of writer Ken Sarowiwa and eight other leaders of the Ogoni tribe of southern Nigeria. The settlement is one of the largest payouts agreed by a multinational corporation charged with human rights violations. Human rights lawyers say this is a right step towards international businesses being made accountable for their environmental and social actions. The Export-Import Bank of China will provide a 1.2 billion US dollar loan to upgrade two generators at Zimbabwe Power Corporation's Huwange Thermal Power Plant. Daily power blackouts due to electricity shortages have hurt mines and businesses. Government officials agreed to the deal. Huwange generates between 380 megawatts and 400 megawatts of electricity against its installed capacity of 920 megawatts. The country's next largest generation facility is Kariba Hydropower Plant in northern Zimbabwe, operating at half of its 750 megawatt capability because water levels in the dam have fallen amid a drought.
The Egyptian Stock Exchange will allow 10 companies to delay their initial public offerings due to global market conditions. The Egyptian Exchange usually requires newly listed companies to hold an initial public offering within six months. This period can be extended if there are good reasons, such as volatile global markets. About 12 companies registered a new listing on the Egyptian market this year, but only half of these had proceeded with an initial share issue. And Niger's economic growth will slow to 4.4% this year because of security concerns and slapping commodity prices. This according to the International Monetary Fund's annual review released on Monday. The West African country produces oil and uranium and reported GDP growth of 6.9% in 2014. In March, the IMF had projected growth of 4.7% for the year. And South Africa's gross gambling revenue grew by 4 and half percent in 2014 compared to the previous year this despite tougher economic conditions it has swelled by 180 million US dollars and are expected to breach the 2 billion dollar mark by 2019 Pietro Calicchio is the gambling industry leader for professional services firm PwC GGR increased by 9.6% in 2014 to just short of 24 billion rand. So that's for the gambling market as a whole, um, excluding the, the lottery. Of that, the casinos, their growth was 4.5%, which is starting to show that it is a mature market. Uh, the casinos have been around for, for a long time, and obviously they are also impacted by the current economic uh, climate. The Butler's Purchaser Managers Index fell sharply to 43.3 index points in November from 48.1 in October. The PMI is now at its lowest levels since August 09. The data shows that uh, South Africa's manufacturing sector recovered strongly in the third quarter and expanded by 6.2%. This suggests uh, that uh, the sector is unlikely to sustain its recent rebound despite absence of power cuts. And that's your economics news. Now, time for our sports update. Yes, Vikil Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, we're kicking off with football news. Host Ethiopia and record 13-time winners Uganda will contest the first semi-final of the 2015 Sikafa Sina Challenge Cup after qualifying to the last four in contrasting fashion on Monday at the Addis Ababa International Stadium. First up were the Cranes who were vying to lift the trophy for the first time since 2012 and the duly dispatched invited side Malawi 2-0. Ethiopia's keeper Abel Mamo was the hero for the home side at the packed Addis Ababa International Stadium when he stopped two post-match sport kicks to lift the Wailia Ibex to the semis in a nerve-wracking 4-3 defeat of Tanzania's Kilimanjaro star. And in South African football, former South African national team assistant coach Sirame Letswaka, who was a coach of Premier Soccer League side Lamontville Golden Arrows, has joined the growing list of coaches who vacated their coaching host seats. 
Litswaka has left the Durban Bay's outfit with immediate effect and becomes the second coach to do so in less than 24 hours. He thus becomes the fifth PSL coach to part ways with his club just after 10 games into the new season. Yes, uh, I can confirm that uh, we have parted ways with Gordon Arrows with immediate effect. So that is the only comment I can make. Uh, and the, if any other comment is that I'm just shocked to find that uh, my letter of resignation has been put in the social media. Other than that, I will not have any comment. But the content of my letter is as it appears in the social media that has been given out by Gordon Arrows. And Barcelona will be aiming for their fifth trophy success in 2015 when they travel to Japan for the FIFA Club World Cup. Following winning the Champions League, La Liga, the Spanish Cup and the UEFA Super Cup, Luis Enrique's side will be hoping to win the Club World Cup for a record third time following victories in 2009 and 2011. German goalkeeper Marc-André Stegen says it would not be easy whoever they face. There's no team in in general. I would say uh, every every team there um, reached something really special, and they're of they're there because of a good reason because they want something in their uh, yeah continent. So um, yeah, we have to pay attention for all of those teams. Uh, it's not going to be easy. Um, when you see that uh, Barca lost uh, already finals in, in for the club uh, World Cup, we always have to pay attention that it happened not the not the third time, I think. And Barcelona have been boosted by the return from injury of Lionel Messi, and his teammates are pleased to have him back in the team. As according to Ster Stegen. It's always good to to have Messi in the team. Um, when he's injured, even then he is important for us because he, because of his uh, personality and um, yeah, we um, we are now even happier that that he is back in the team. In golf news, Spain's Miguel Angel Jimenez is the final player to be added to this year's NetBank Golf Challenge and completes the 30-man field that will tee up at the Gary Player Country Club from the 3rd to the 6th of December. The final place was scheduled to go to Sunday's winner of the Alfred Daniel Championship, if not already exempt. The colorful Spaniard returns to the tournament for the sixth time after finishing sixth last year. NetBank Challenge spokesperson Alistair Ropa explains. Everybody's arrived now. The last player to arrive was uh, probably not even an hour ago. We got uh, Yemenes, Miguel Angel Yemenes arrived uh, because he was the last man in and he only found out on Sunday night that he had qualified after uh, Shaul won the Alfred Daniel, that he got the invitation that Shaul originally had, and so we got him on a plane from Miguel, uh, from, from Malaga, sorry, and he arrived about an hour ago. This morning, Louis Oosthuizen arrived, and they were the last two. The other 28 players all either arrived on Sunday afternoon or on Monday. They're all, yeah, they're playing in a, a program at the moment, and um, yeah, all's going well. Finally, the South African Supreme Court of Appeal will announce on Thursday if it will overturn Paralympian Oscar Pistorius' conviction of culpable homicide that could send him back to prison. Pistorius was freed on parole last month after serving a fifth of his prison term for manslaughter. He killed River Steenkamp in February 2013. Prosecutors want him to be convicted of murder, while the defense argues that the sentence he received in the High Court in Pretoria is appropriate and should stand. That's a sport news this hour.
This is Africa Digest. That wraps up Africa Digest for today. This hour from myself, Jezaro, producer Lebo Monomacholo, technical producer Revelino, Ibrahim, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thanks for listening. Any comments? Email at info at channelafrica.co.za or SMS plus two seven eight two double three two five nine oh five. Taking us through top of the hour, Richie S. Africa Dance, African Dance, here on Channel Africa. <laughs>